bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean, and this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. One quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you pick up a signed copy of New York City's Heart Island, A Cemetery of Strangers, and the audiobook? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeene.com. The ship lurched in the heavy North Atlantic swell, its bow plunging deep as it pitched sharply, its seasick passengers crammed into its small hold, clutching anything nearby as they considered their recent decision to leave Europe. The young lady, dressed simply, another anonymous face in the crowded ship, kept to herself as she has always done. Her name was Louisa Van Slyke. She would die of yellow fever in 1869, alone in New York City's Charity Hospital on Blackwell's Island. With no friends or relatives to claim her, she would become the first of almost a million to be laid to rest in the potter's field on Hart Island. Gail Jarrow is the author of many popular nonfiction books, including Red Madness, Fatal Fever, and Bubonic Panic. Her books have been received have received many starred reviews, awards, and distinctions, including Best Book Awards from the New York Public Library and the National Science Teachers Association. She was educated at Duke University. Her books detail the effects of typhoid fever, the plague, and pellagra. She has also written about Typhoid Mary, who we will explore in more depth. And Gail Jarrow, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? I'm great. Well, good to talk to you. Good, good. You know, the first question that comes to mind reading your book biography, is why this interest uh, in the area of diseases, especially those that 
uh, seemed to be uh, very prevalent in the 19th century? Well, I have a degree in biology, and I've always had an interest in history. So actually, my writing combines those two interests. I write about history as it relates to biology and medicine. And most of my books have focused on the late 1800s, early 1900s, because that was an, a period of time when the medical community was just starting to understand germ theory, that microbes actually can, were the cause of diseases in many cases. Um, and there was this transition that happened, made a huge difference in the sanitation situation in this country, which relates to typhoid fever, for example, and just the treatment of people and when they were sick. So I find that fascinating, and that's why I write about that period. The, um, these, the various diseases that you write about, I mean, for instance, typhoid fever that you just mentioned, wh what is it? I mean, what would be the symptoms? What would be the causes? Well, the typhoid fever is a, it's a caused by a bacteria. Um, it invades the intestines, small intestine specifically. Um, symptoms can be headache, high fever, uh, fatigue, abdominal pain, spots on the chest and abdomen, and in the most extreme cases, um, diarrhea and bleeding from the small intestine. About 10 to 30% of people died from it in the, back in that time because there was no treatment. Today we have antibiotics. They had no treatment whatsoever. So somebody who got typhoid fever um, could be nursed, but really, unless their body fought the bacteria, they they could die from it. Uh, and even people who survived were often ill and weak for months, and maybe for their lifetime, they were never right again. Um, it was, at the turn of the century, it was one of the top five fatal infectious diseases in the United States. And it was something that the public health service was very concerned about, and health departments such as the one in New York City were very concerned about, because it, it was so dangerous, and it spread, it's only human to human, and it spreads from the excrement of a sick person to the mouth of a healthy person, either by water or food, or by dirty hands. So the situation in New York City at that time, describe the sanitary conditions or the lack thereof that existed back then. Well, there had been, we're talking the late 1800s, early 1900s. There had been a huge influx of immigrants, as you referred to earlier. Um, and by one calculation, there were 200,000 people living in each square mile of New York City. Well, that's an enormous number of people, and they didn't have good sanitation. So they'd have these huge tenements, and they'd have a few outhouses near their water source, near a pump. Uh, so intestinal diseases could really spread quickly. Any disease could spread that quickly when you have many people close in close contact. And in the summer, um, 
I, I found in my research that for every week, 1,500 babies died from dysentery from contaminated milk or water. I mean, that was the situation in New York City. So the health department was very concerned about this. They're very concerned about epidemics breaking out because there's so many people living in close contact. And this is a period of time where there are no antibiotics. There, there's nothing you can do when people get sick. It spreads. So that was kind of the situation that the typhoid Mary situation um, evolved in. Right. And people panicked because of that setup in New York City. I, I want to return to uh, or explore further typhoid Mary. But before we do, I also see you wrote about the plague the plague existed in America back during this period? And, and, and what, what is it, and how, how was that brought about? Well, plague um, came to the United States in San Francisco in 1900, and it came by ship. Um, it came originally from China through Hawaii, Honolulu, to the U.S. at San Francisco. And it it... It's bubonic plague. Um, it can become pneumonic, which means it's in the lungs, uh, and it's it is spread by fleas that are on rodents, specifically in San Francisco at that time, rats. Um, and again, it's a bacteria. They didn't understand really the transmission situation, and it took a, a while till they did, but ultimately. Um, the control of plague in San Francisco came about when they controlled the rat population. Unfortunately, the plague had gotten into the ground squirrel population, and it is there today. And it's also in the prairie dog population in the western United States. So there's an average of seven cases of plague in the U.S. reported to the CDC uh, every year. And people sometimes die. So ground squirrels can carry the plague? How, how would the, how would a human become infected from a ground squirrel? Well, so there are fleas that are feeding on the blood of these ground squirrels. And if a ground squirrel is carrying the plague and the flea, which it got from another flea, uh, and, the, and the flea absorbs that and then bites, a human, um, then the human will will have that bacteria in his body. And the reason that might happen is if the ground squirrel dies and the fleas want to get to a warm body. And if a human comes by on a trail or picks up the animal or anything like that, um, then the flea can jump on them and bite them. So the cases that have happened have been because of flea bites. Um, and people don't even realize it. I mean, you know, there's, there've been some children that have seen a ground squirrel on the ground and, um, it's dead. And they, in one case, the little girl covered it with her sweatshirt, um, tenderly covered it. And then later put that sweatshirt on and she, she developed plague. So it, it is one of those things that's not that usual anymore because we understand how to control rats in cities and 
health departments are really on the watch for infected colonies of prairie dogs or ground squirrels, but it still happens. The uh, the diseases that you have described, uh, what are the demographics? Uh, in other words, back then, uh, in other words, who became more likely to become infected and to die? I mean, with the young versus the old or the rich versus the poor? Are there cer- certain categories of people who seem to suffer more? Well, if you're talking about plague, um, no. It just depended on who was exposed to these infected fleas from rats. Um, with typhoid fever, uh, it, it was whoever happened to um, ingest contaminated food or water. However, they noticed that young adults, late teens, early 20s, seemed to be more susceptible to typhoid fever. And one explanation was that uh, older people had had it, had had the disease and recovered from it and then had immunity. Um, And the second explanation is that many times at that age, late teens, early 20s, people are leaving where they grew up and moving to another area, maybe a city, and they're exposed to it for the first time. Um, I I don't know. I didn't come across any definite explanation, but in my hometown of Ithaca, New York, there was an outbreak of typhoid fever in 1903. Um, The city had 13,000 people, and there were 3,000 students at Cornell. The students at Cornell were, many of them were affected, and the explanation, again, was they were at that age that seemed to be more susceptible to the disease. I see. So uh, in talking about typhoid fever, I guess our natural uh, segue here is to talk about typhoid Mary. Who was she and what happened to her? Typhoid Mary was the nickname given to a woman named Mary Mallon. She had come to the United States from Ireland when she was a young teenager. She became a cook And she apparently was a fairly good cook because she was hired by wealthy families uh, to live in their homes and and cook the family's meals. Now, she came on the radar because in 1906, she was the cook for a family that was vacationing for the summer in Oyster Bay, Long Island. They were renting a, a house. And of the 11 people that were in that household, Six of them developed typhoid fever, but nobody else in Oyster Bay did. So it was focused on this house. The owners of the house wanted it investigated because they wanted to rent that house in the future, but here it had this cloud hanging over it. So they hired a man named George Soper, who was a sanitation engineer. He was a civil engineer, and he specialized in in um, filtration systems, sewage systems, helping communities have clean water. He investigated the case, and he realized and focused on the cook who had been recently hired. And he traced her history with an employment agency and discovered for the 10 years that he could go back, that it was possible, that She had been working in homes, and a total of 24 people 
had developed typhoid fever in the homes where she worked, and one of them died. So he told the health department about this, and the woman was named Mary Mallon. She was completely healthy. When you looked at her, she was, she was in her early 30s. She was robust. She rosy-cheeked, did not show any signs of being sick. Um, they realized that she was an example of a healthy carrier. And this was um, just recently, just a couple of years before this all happened in 1906, 1907, that uh, scientists realized that people could carry typhoid bacteria in their bodies after having been sick uh, without having any symptoms. And later they realized about 5% of, of former typhoid fever victims were carriers and were healthy. And she was the first one found in the U.S. So she was hired to cook because, you know, she'd come for an interview. She looked healthy. But she was, she was transmitting typhoid bacteria in the food that she cooked, probably because she didn't wash her hands after using the bathroom. And any food she touched that got contaminated and wasn't cooked because cooking killed the bacteria. So anything that was served cold potentially could infect the people eating her food, and apparently that's what happened. So that's how the health department, with George Soper's help, zeroed in on her. And once they did, um, they took her into custody. They tested her. There's a blood test they did, and then they tested her feces, and it was they were teeming with typhoid bacteria. So they put her in a hospital, Willard Parker Hospital in New York, which was run by the um, New York Health Department. And they kept her there a month, and they just they couldn't do anything for her. There was no way to cure her. And finally, because they needed her bed for other people who had infectious diseases, they decided to move her to North Brother Island in the East River. And this was an isolation, a quarantine island, where they had a hospital for tuberculosis patients. They gave her a cottage, and she lived there. Now, she had no court hearing, nothing. They just did this. They grabbed her out of the house where she was cooking, and they put her there. A um, couple years later, she had a lawyer help her. Uh, she went to court, and she tried to get released, saying she never had a chance to argue her case or anything, and here she was healthy, and she didn't believe that she was spreading any diseases. But she lost her case. Um, the health department had proof that she was still, her feces still had typhoid bacteria, so she was still able to transmit it. And they, she was back on the island. But then there's another part of the story, because eventually the health department and the Public Health Service of the United States realized that there were probably thousands of people in the United States who were healthy carriers, and you could not possibly put them all on an isolation island. So the way to handle her was to tell her, we're, we're going to let you go, but you cannot cook anymore because you're transmitting this disease when you're not careful about washing your hands. So they did let her go. This was uh, in 1910, so about three years after she had been put on the island. 
And she was told to report to the New York City Health Department on a regular basis to be tested and just to check in with them. And she was not to cook. So she stuck to this for a couple of years and then she disappeared. So in 1915, like five years after they'd released her, there was a big outbreak of typhoid fever in a maternity hospital in New York City. 25 people got sick and two of them died. When the health department investigated, they found out that the cook was a woman named Mrs. Brown, but it was really Mary Mallon using an alias, and they caught her again. And this time, they put her back on North Brother Island, and she was not allowed to live outside the island ever again. Now, eventually, they let her go into the city for day trips to church to visit her friends, but she could never live anywhere else but North Brother Island. So she spent 26 years there in a cottage uh, until her death. I understand she became somewhat of a celebrity, didn't she? She held court, so to speak, for reporters or whatnot? Well, when she took her case to court initially, which was two years after she had been uh, detained, there was a lot of publicity. And that's when her name, Typhoid Mary, was coined by the media. Um, So, yes, she became known for that. And, of course, her name, that, that... Typhoid Mary name has stuck. Uh, We use it anytime we're talking about somebody who's spreading disease to the rest of us. And it's just an interesting thing. People know that term, but they don't know who she is or where that came from. And that was the story. Exactly. Do you know what eventually happened to her? She died in 1938. She had had a stroke. um, So for a few years, she was treated in the hospital, Riverside Hospital, on North Brother Island. Um, uh, She needed full medical care after the stroke, and then she just, you know, she finally died in 1938. So she lived there for a great deal of her life, almost half her life. And I, from all accounts, she never accepted that she was spreading typhoid fever to anybody. And, of course, she was angry and pretty bitter, but it was a sad situation that she was the very first case. And with all that publicity, I really think the health department was in this position that what could they do? If they let her go, everybody would have known about it and there would have been outrage, especially after they did let her go and she went to work in a maternity hospital of all places. Right. Has typhoid uh, fever or typhoid, has it been totally um, eradicated in the United States? Absolutely not. Um, people people get it, and it's usually because they've traveled to countries where it is still a problem. Um, the biggest areas, India, Pakistan, parts of um, the Americas, Central and South America and Africa are still places that typhoid fever exists. And if you travel there and you don't have vaccines and you're not careful about your water, you can come back infected. And they're having cases um, that the CDC ends up investigating where people who are cooking uh, in restaurants are found to have typhoid fever. 
So there are outbreaks that occur. Um, so it, it is something that is not eradicated because so many parts of the world do not have clean water. They do not have good sanitation. So the situation that in New York City in 1900, that still exists in many parts of the world. On that cautionary note, and I guess we, maybe we should throw in watch what you eat or where you eat, right? Because that seems to be one <laughs> of the major ways that it gets transmitted. Well, uh, well yes. <laughs> Well, Gail, uh, this has been totally uh, fascinating, and um, I want to uh, thank you very much uh, for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. I'm glad I could talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, Simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island.